Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. Hello there, I'm Pastor Jeff Buck, one of the assistant pastors here at Calvary Monterey, and I will be handling the Tuesday night Bible study tonight. So happy to be standing in for our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. We're going to be looking at a beautiful passage familiar to many of you that are Bible students from Ephesians chapter 2 and the first 10 verses. I mean, the Apostle Paul is an amazing writer anyway, but in his prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, written about 61 AD from prison in Rome, he writes with a depth of insight that is coming from a jail cell the fruit of 20 plus years of apostolic ministry and consecrated study longer than that. And his his insights are just amazing. I remember many years ago, my mentor had gotten a new Bible and he made the comment of how he was enjoying this new Bible. And he said, however, it would be interesting if you were to look at the Bible closely, you would notice that it's feathered and used more in one section than any other. And I was interested to hear where it was that he was emphasizing. And he said, it's the book of Ephesians. It's really the handbook for the church. And I remember listening to his words and thinking, oh, so I guess I had permission once in a while to to pause and really live in a book or a passage and really work it out in my mind. And, And that's what I began to do years ago in studying the book of Ephesians. As I said, it's like the handbook for the church. And uh, one of the things that I, I see in the inspiration of Scripture here is that the Apostle Paul, as he's sitting in prison, as he's writing this letter to his beloved church at Ephesus, which uh, was one of the great churches of the New Testament period, he's thinking about Christ and the church. And he actually gives in this passage seven different pictures of the church. This isn't really the message, but it's a picture of the depth of this book. Seven different pictures of the church. In 122, he uses the term in Greek, ekklesia, the church. And it means those that are called out. The implication is a group of people around a specific identity and purpose. That's the church. So in 122, he uses picture one. He he speaks of this assembly called the church. The very next verse, he does a very different picture of the church, and he calls it in 123, the body. This is something that we're going to see in 1 Corinthians and other places. Paul's revelation of the church, not just as an assembly, but as a related body of people, like body parts in your body. So again, a a beautiful picture of the church. And when you think about the church as the body, well, that gives you a certain set of expectations and, and vision. Then number three in chapter two, verse 10, which is in our text today, he speaks of us as number three, his workmanship. More on that as we go but it's a word that you could translate as um, masterpiece, but really more uh, faithful, I think, to the original word in context is the word instrument. We are useful instruments to God. And then we're at number four, 219, one of my favorites. He speaks of the church as a family. I've always loved this identity of the church as a family. The Greek is actually the the term which you would translate the domestics, people that live in the same house. I love the fact that the church is a family in 219. And then in 222, there's this fifth picture of the church as the temple, being built together as living stones, as a dwelling place for God and the Spirit. The fifth thing that the church is, is we're this place where God dwells. God moves, God hangs out as it were. And what a, an amazing, exalted picture of the church that Paul gives. And then in the very familiar fifth chapter, verse 25 through 33, 
he speaks of the church as the bride, the bride of Christ. And as there's a bride and groom on earth, there is a heavenly uh, groom and a heavenly bride. That's us. And so we're to have a bridal love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, 6.10 through 19, there is the picture of the army, the armor of God on a soldier. And you put these things together, the church, the body, the workmanship, the family, the temple, the bride, and the army. It is a multifaceted look at who and what we are. This is what Paul saw that the church would unfold and become. It's very much like a, a diamond with different facets that shine in different ways. That's the church. That's the kind of depth of revelation that Paul had about the church, which makes me love the, this epistle. But getting down to business in chapters 2, 1 through 10, there are three movements in the passage, three sections in the passage. Number uh, one would be verses 1 through 3, our past condition. Paul will give us a very realistic view of who and what we were. Then secondly, in 4 through 7, there's a second passage that begins with the words, but God. Past condition, but God. Doing something new and improved in our lives. And finally, verses 8 through 10, looking at the past condition, but then our present treasures in the but God passage, verses 8 through 10, it goes a place that to me is so precious, and that is service. We not only get to be saved and, and follow God and be at the temple and all these things, but God wants to use us. I call it the sweet spot of service. So more on that as we get there. First part, perfectly logical order, typical of Paul. He speaks about our past condition, and he just starts like this. I think, actually, I'll just go ahead and read the whole passage. It's so beautiful, and then we'll break it into three parts. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, so significant, we were by nature children of wrath, of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of us were in that same boat. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then a little parenthesis, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And one of my favorite verses, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Not a result of works, so no one can boast. For we, here's the, the ultimate, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's like the dessert. I wish I could just <laughs> dive in right there. But let's get through the, uh, the earlier parts first. The verse three verses, past condition, notice he says, and you were dead. Dead is a, a word of tremendous finality. When you're dead, you're dead. Everything is changed Nothing remains active and viable in you. And even though we were alive, he makes it clear in the, the, the text, we were dead in two things, trespasses and sins. Now, Paul was such a wonderful intellect. The Greek language is such a precise language that I want to look at these two words. 
we were dead in the trespasses and sins. The word trespass, um, it's an interesting word. It means to fall aside or fall short. It's a person with a goal who wants to get to a certain place. They're prepared. They're ready. They're dressed. They're ready to go. Then right before they get to the place they want to go, they fall short. And that's what a trespass is. It's a kind of sin where we want to be perfect. We want to do right. We want to have a girlfriend and, and not lust after her. We want to have a, a wife and not be cruel. We want these things, but we, we and especially in the past, we were dead in our trespasses, in our inability to make it to perfection, even though our heart wants to be pure and to be right. Dead in trespasses, and then he simply says, and in sins. That's a word that a lot of us know. It's the Greek word hamartia, which means missing the mark. It's the picture of a target with a bullseye, and I am aiming at the target. And if I hit it correctly, it's perfect. If I haven't, in this word picture, I've sinned. You know, Denise and I met in our freshman year of college, 1972. And one of the first things we did together is we took an archery class. Both of us, we took an archery class. Now, I fancied myself as a little more of an athlete than she, and yet I consistently found she was a, had a better aim than I did. And it just frustrated me <laughs> to, to no end that as hard as I tried, as, as strong as I felt I was, and, and at least somewhat athletic, I could not hit the bullseye as much as she did. And, you know, I found that life is very much like that. I, re I really want to hit the bullseye in my behavior and my inner attitudes and my intentions that no one else knows, but I miss the mark. And especially when I was dead in my falling aside and falling short and in my missing the mark, I had no hope. I, I knew I was a mess. I knew was, I was an accident looking for a place to happen. Because there was in me, and I can still remember it now, I can still summon the inner numbness and deadness that I felt. I, I didn't know what word to put on it. I didn't know why I felt that way. But 14, 15, up until getting, getting saved at 16, man, I, I can relate to this. I was just dead on the inside. And it says here, dead in trespasses and sins in which I once walked, following. Now, whether I knew it or not, I was following the trends of the world. And he describes it in three phases. Following the course of this world. The Greek says the age of this world. It's the picture of a person caught in a river that's moving a certain direction and they're just caught along with it. The course of this world. And as much as I wanted to be different, I just found myself moving inexorably along with what I saw around me and all that I knew. And that was the course of this world. And then number two, it says, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, that is a picture of Satan and myriads of demonic spirits called demons that are invisible to us but active in the spiritual realm and trying to establish a rebel kingdom in this world, even though Jesus has already died on the cross, recaptured and regained us for God. But he is forever a rebel, and he is the leader or the prince of the power of the air. There are powerful, invisible forces that, especially when we're dead and we have no better idea of how to live anyway, we are led without knowing it by the, the work of Satan. I mean, if you take a look at our world today, if you take a look at what's happened in things like World War II and the things that people did to one another, it's amazing and you, and you think, well, how can anyone treat someone like people did in World War II? 
there is a, there's a supernatural push toward evil and wickedness in our world to, to pit nation against nation, ethnic group against ethnic group. It's, it's amazing. I, I was in a car one time going to a Bible study when I was a, a, a young Christian. I was maybe 19 years old. This was like 1973 or so. And we're in a 57 Chevy heading into Kansas City. We went 60 miles for a Bible study because we were so hungry for God. And in the darkness of the back seat of this uh, beautiful car, this young man whom I didn't know, had just met as we sat in the car together, he, um, he said very quietly, you know, I'm a new Christian, but I have had a terrible background. And he said uh, very quietly with his head down, I, I sacrificed a child to Satan. And he didn't say a whole lot more, but I, I knew he wasn't grandstanding. He wasn't uh, telling a story. He was so broken up about a, an involvement in Satan's world that it caused uh, the death of a, of a son. And you think, how can this happen? The prince of the power of the air, people are following. And he says a, a third phrase, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. When we look at this world today, it is a world walking in disobedience to God. So many people reject God, but, but so many people also, they know there's a God. They, they know by instinct that there's a better way, that certain things are right because they're right. We all know it. And, and yet, there's disobedience. It's interesting, the Greek word disobedience means to listen equal. In other words, as information comes to us or authoritative words come to us, we say, well, I'm as smart as you. I'm as high in the world as you are. Uh, tr try to teach me. Try to influence me. Rather than taking, especially toward God, the humble attitude, the childlike attitude. And all that produces <clears throat> is rank disobedience. And we all know what it's like to live as sons of disobedience. We just hate authority of, of all descriptions and want to be independent of all authority, including God. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And isn't it true that we all have these passions our body talks to us, our mind talks to us, and we are led through our, our thoughts in the mind of, of sin that we'd like to commit, and our body talking to us about gratifying it above all else. We were, especially when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, our minds and our bodies were just captive to the course of the world. And we were, by nature, children of God's wrath. God is our creator. We are accountable to God. And when we live in direct disobedience to him, we are children of wrath. One day, God will pour out his wrath upon sinful man, upon this world. 2 Peter 3 talks about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the judgment seat of Christ. There is a, a coming judgment where saint and sinner both will stand before God and the wrath of God ultimately in the consigning of people to hell, the unpopular doctrine of hell, but God's wrath one day is poured out upon those who reject the wonderful saving message of Christ. The wrath of God is something that we must understand. The absolute hatred of God, not of sinners, but of sin. And when we look at what sin has done in this world, we can see why God hates sin. And so it's a, it's a rather bleak passage here. These first three verses are, are not ones that you're going to uh, type out and put on your, uh, your, your mirror or on your refrigerator. But with God, so often, you have the description of man's condition, and then there's this wonderful preposition, but, but God 
all that being true, God seeing my innermost problems, my outermost problems, but God. I just love the fact that God didn't just consign man immediately to the scrap heap or to hell. He devised a solution, which Paul now described. We've already t- seen the darkness of the world in which we once lived, once lived in death and numbness and under wrath. But God being, and notice the next words, and these are what greet you when you become a Christian. But God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. What do we meet? Rich mercy and great love. I have to tell you that becoming a Christian, though I was in church all my life, I would never have known about the riches of mercy the greatness of God's love. It just was not something I had seen, probably my own fault. But I know the night I got saved at 16, I knew that night God was showing me mercy and giving me not what I deserve, but what I did not deserve. And that was all the goodness and forgiveness to Christ. And that very night, I felt the great love of God. It was thick in the room, the riches of His mercy, the greatness of His love. From my first moment as a Christian, I have experienced that. I I try to, as recently as this morning, early, early devotional time, I try to keep in, in my mind, in my heart, as difficult as life can sometimes be. When I got saved, and as early as this morning at 5 o'clock, I, I experienced, again, the riches of His mercy and the greatness of His love, which He has for you as you have come to Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Now, the opposite of dead is alive. You've seen things that are dead. I've seen a number of of dead people. And and I know what death is. But I also know that when I gave my heart to Christ, that deadness, that numbness, that misery... All of that that night drained out of me like like liquid. And I experienced life. I walked out of that house, and and I love to remember the night I got saved as often as as I can. Because I walked out of that house, things looked different and felt different. I was different because I was given the very life of Christ. I was dead in my trespasses, but God made me alive together with Christ. How did he do that? By grace, you have been saved. That's another thing that you will encounter early in the Christian life. That is something called grace. More on that in a moment. By grace, by God's unmerited favor and mercy and love, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up. Out of death, he raised us up with him, like like we're resurrected out of our spiritual death. Raised us up with him. And now this is the, the, the interesting part. And this is Paul in the depths of a Roman uncomfortable jail prison with a revelation that's, I think, pretty well unique to him. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I love the fact that it always says in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus, because we are essentially joined with Christ. It, it's like when you're really cold and you hug someone that's warm and that warmth passes from them to you and your cold passes from you to them, and you're one in that moment. Colossians 3.2 says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The moment you get saved, 
life floods into you and death flows out of you because of what Christ did for you. He was the innocent substitute for us, had no sin of his own for death to even take him. So when Jesus died, it was our death, my death, that killed him so that then in his resurrection, because he was innocent of all sin, he grants life to me. And where it says, seated us with him in the heavenly places. I see this, and in one sense, I, I think it's a great theological mystery because I'm seated here in Monterey, California. Um, my body is here. But I, I think now of heavenly things. All through the day, my mind wanders off to, to heaven and to evangelism and missions and, and love and, and who I can try to help. I think now of these heavenly things. And I have a greater heavenly perspective about my life. I'm 67 years old, and I analyze myself. I don't even think about, oh, I've only got uh, X number of years left. I simply think I'm alive today. I have life in me today. And my heavenly perspective tells me I still have so much to do. I also have heavenly strategies when I look at problems today, I can look at them in a, a heavenly fashion. I, I love the, the Salvation Army and the, the founding general, William Booth. And as he in London was establishing this movement, he had a saying. And they, they specialized in the inner city of London. He said, go for souls and go for the worst. Go for souls and go for the worst. Now, that's a strategy that most of us would not think was wise, to go find the worst people you can and bring the gospel to them. But sometimes in the kingdom of God, things in strategy can seem very backward. As the Bible says, he who humbles himself will be exalted or the way up is the way down, or God's gifts are on the lowest shelves. We have a heavenly strategy today. We are not trying to climb the ladder and, and have the, the, the fame and the riches and so on that the world does. We, we have a heavenly strategy, and that is obey God day by day, step by step, with joyous obedience. I see all of that in this seated in heavenly places in Christ, we are trying now to see things as Christ sees them, to think as he thinks, to wish what he wishes, to have Christ's heart come into us. I see all of that in this amazing statement. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. That's where our heart is. We're here. We are tending to business on earth, but we are also wishing to be with Christ in heaven, seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. I look forward to the day when I graduate from this life and I actually am in the, the throne room where Christ is, in the heavenly places in Christ. And what's going to happen in these heavenly places to which all of us who know Christ will one day be introduced, so that in the coming ages, what's going to happen in, in these heavenly places when we're joined with Christ? So that in the coming ages, it's so important to know that the age in which we live today is not the final one. We're used to this church age that we're in. We're used to the gospel age we're used to the age that we're now familiar with, but there are coming ages. There are times and dimensions far beyond what we've experienced. And he says in those coming ages, Christ might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. What's he going to show us? 
immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. I love Bible words like this. I mean, it's, it's like going into one of the candy stores around here, and if you, you just had a free hand and all the money you wanted, I just want to grab some of this and grab some of that. It's like that to me in the kingdom of God. When I, when I hear these words, in, in my life to come, immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. Grace is the sovereign, supernatural, favorable disposition of God toward us that then releases into us the grace to be able to please God, walk with God, do great things for God. That's what happens when grace comes upon you. You become a more effective, organized, targeted person more than you ever were before. And these grace, these uh, riches are immeasurable, and they come by grace. A mentor of mine used to say, anything that can be earned is not grace. Anything that can be earned isn't grace, because grace comes to us not because of performance, not because of our good looks or our ability. It's simply because because God wants to give us these things. And these are immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. The Greek word for kindness, Christotes, I think the best way you could translate it is mercy in action. Kindness isn't just a, a positive feeling toward you. It's when I behold you and I have a, a merciful, loving attitude towards you, and I act, and I do something. When we come into the Christian life, if you were like me, I was not kind to people. I just didn't really have a lot of interest in people, even the church people that I, you know, went to church with as I was a kid. But the immeasurable risks of grace are also tinged with kindness. How God so kindly reaches into your life and pulls you out of this and pulls you out of that. Maybe he lets you go through some difficulties and you're thinking, Lord, where are you? But ultimately, his riches and grace and kindness will take you up to be with Christ in heaven. But in, in kindness also now, God treats us so well. As kind as anyone has ever been to you, no one is as kind as God. No one reaches into his sleeve and pulls out the kind of wonderful things for your life and my life and for the body of Christ like God does. Where has kindness gone? Where has this sense of we're responsible for our brothers and sisters, and we are our brother's keeper? Well, what we're going to experience in all of eternity is the kindness and immeasurable riches of grace that are ours in Christ Jesus. So the but God passage, four through seven, it, it takes away the, the pain of the first three verses because it talks about rich mercy, great love, made alive together, riches, kindness, and all these things, immeasurable riches of grace. I, I always like the word immeasurable, something that you just cannot put uh, a ruler on. You just can't. And the kind of things that God does, you just can't quantify, you can't measure. You just have to sit back and enjoy and be enthralled in the love of God. I remember being in a prayer meeting one time with a, a friend, and he was praying about the kindness and goodness and the mercy, and then he started to pray about the beauty of Christ as our bride, as, as the bride. And I remember him praying, Lord, may we, be a, may we be eternally stunned by the beauty of Christ. And I remember thinking, yeah, I know what being stunned by a beautiful sunset is or my beautiful wife or whatever. And I would love to think of the fact that we will be eternally stunned with all the grace and the goodness and the kindness for eternity, stunned by the beauty of our Christ and our God. Which brings us then to the cool part, because 
all this being true of us, it's kind of like Paul is now going to turn the corner and say, no, no, so what about this? What is the impact of this upon you? It's like, so what? And in these last three verses, and I discovered this in my life, never had a purpose in my life before I was a Christian, never had a, a, a sense of direction or goals or, or, or anything. But the night I got saved, and, and by the Bible teachers that took us uh, as 16, 17-year-old kids in, uh, in our high school, I began to hear this particular verse quoted all the time. For by grace are you saved through faith. I, I have it memorized in King James. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace, you're saved through faith. Grace and faith are like the currency of the kingdom of God. When you go to another country, you've got to get the right currency. You can't buy anything. You come into the kingdom of God. What's the currency in the kingdom of God? Well, there's lots of things like love and mercy and so on. But right here, we see two of the great keys are grace and faith. If you can appropriate by faith, the grace of God, the love of God, the ability of God, you'll find yourself beginning to have a direction and a purpose for your life. Because by grace you're saved through faith, and it's not of works. Anything that can be worked toward is not grace. One of the things I see in this verse is you must learn as a Christian, to be a good receiver. Children are good receivers. You say to them, okay, I'm going to go get you a bike on Saturday. A bike on Saturday? And they'll run away like they already had it. I'm getting a bike. I'm getting a bike. I have a bike. They have this ability to receive. And that is this thing of grace and faith. We didn't earn any of this. It's the gift of God. As a Christian, I had to get used to receiving gifts from God. I thought you were rewarded on the basis of performance. But when I began to experience in my senior year of high school, for example, real grace and favor with my classmates, even though I wore a cross, carried a Bible, but I found myself respected and uh, even liked by the people in this senior high, even though I gave up trying to be any kind of a popular person. And that was a gift to me. And I saw that if I would so simply pursue God and walk with Him, God would take care of my reputation. He would take care of everything in my life. And I realized how much God loves to give gifts. Salvation by faith and grace, all a gift from God not a result of works so that no one would boast. Boasting is such an interesting thing because boasting always draws attention to self and something that I am or something that I did that makes me impressive. And boasting so often comes out of insecurity. A person who doesn't already know they're okay just as they are, and yet they feel like, well, I got to tell about this thing that I did and that thing that I, I have and that thing that I bought. All of that can be let go when you simply receive the gifts that God gives and especially the great gift of salvation. And I began to get so excited that I didn't need to boast. I could let go of insecurities because I was in this wonderful kingdom and I simply needed to be, every time someone opened the Bible, Every time someone prayed in prayer meetings, I just needed to be open and receptive, and I would constantly learn. And, and I was like a kid with getting gifts every day all the time as a young believer. And so he takes us through to this 10th verse, which is the, the pinnacle. I call it the sweet spot of service, where we have all these wonderful things happening in our lives, and we're... We're experiencing health in the inner man. And then comes the point where God has given you gifts 
And now he wants you to use them and he wants you to discover. This is a common theme in, in my life because it's something that happened to me pretty early on in my Christian faith and I, I wish it for everyone. He says, for we are his workmanship, his poema, his masterpiece, his tool, his instrument. You know, the church doesn't just sit around and look good. We have jobs to do. And everyone within the church has a little different part of that job. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And I, I love the fact that he uses the word created. Only God can create. Only God can take out of nothing and make something. And when God creates, he makes an entirely new thing rather than rewarm the old. We are his workmanship we are a new creation. We as individuals, we as the church, we are created in Christ Jesus. And these next three words, maybe they're commonplace to you. Maybe you're the kind of person that is always related to works. I did not. I did everything I could as a kid to shun work and avoid work and stay under the radar. Created for good works good works. We've all done bad works. We've all done bad things. We've all done all kinds of mistakes, and maybe we were arrested, or maybe our, our lives just, just never quite got on track. But here we see people created for good works. When, when you stop doing evil stuff, and you start doing good stuff, life is completely different. <laughs> There's such a joy in just doing what's right. In living an open and transparent life, surely we make mistakes, but we begin to do good works, and here's the best part, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A lifetime of good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I never get tired of, the, of pointing out to people, you have a specific destiny in God, a purpose. You have gift or gifts. You have a, a, a path already laid out for you. Your job being not to forge your own way through life, but to discover the path God has made for you. Whom does God want me to marry? How many children does God want me to have? Where does God want me to live? Where should I fellowship? What kind of degree or trade should I seek? What kind of book should I read? How should I relate to the people in my community? Is God calling me into public service? Is God calling me to be a homemaker? What is it that God has for me? I'm seated in Christ in heavenly places, so I begin to have a heavenly perspective for my life. As I look at myself, I'll always either undervalue or overvalue myself. I just have the hardest time, and I think most of us do, in properly judging ourselves. But what happens is you begin to see yourself more clearly as you be, just begin to do the good works that God has for you. I've known so many women who were not interested in having children, my wife was one of them, that then when that child is born, God willing and, and, and God blessed, uh, a child hopefully healthy and, and strong and yet you don't lose them at birth as some men do. But as you hold that child for the first time, a transition and a, and a transformation comes over you and you're you're, you're a mother. You maybe weren't even prepared, and you maybe you were afraid and weren't even so sure about this. And how many times? Thousands and millions of women have experienced this. The transforming power of motherhood just surging into you, even without your permission. And as you wrap yourself around that life, that is part of the good works God has prepared for you. If you do nothing else, 
but major on family life, care for your children and, and care for your husbands as, as a woman. If you did nothing else, you probably will have many other things. But if you discover that good work that God has for you, all the fulfillment and the effectiveness in the sculpting of those lives so that all that those children do the rest of their lives, you are the secondary one responsible for that. That man that has inside, I have a son-in-law like this, who has the wirings that understands how things connect and how things are built. And you have like that engineer's mind. How does God want to use that or your ability in mathematics? I have a relative that's a mathematician and this man has a, a gift from God in, in math. One summer, he was hired by an oil company up in Newfoundland where he lived to spend the summer and to write a mathematical equation so that the oil companies could chart the flow on the ocean of icebergs, the icebergs which come down from, from the, the north and threaten the oil derricks. And they asked him, write, and he did, an equation so that we can, by my mathematical equation, determine whether we need to move the oil derrick out of the way or it's going to miss it. Who's got a mind like that? That particular person. And every single one that's listening has inside you a greatness, a gift, a direction, their footprints in the sand for your life because you are in this 10th verse. If you've given your life to Christ, seated in heavenly places, heavenly perspectives and strategies, sooner or later, you're going to find that sweet spot of service. And as you walk with God and as you serve humbly and you find yourself into more and more significant strata of society or into deeper recesses of the pain of people's lives, you have that sense of, of a gift in you that's moving and flowing there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that flow of the gift out of you. So let me summarize and pray for you because we've seen today that we're alive. We were once dead as a doornail, as they say. But God has shown us the riches of his mercy and love and thoroughly changed us. We've seen that God wants to give us a heavenly seat, a heavenly perspective and a mindset. And God wants to fulfill a preordained plan for us. I, that's one of the reasons I think it's so tragic. I just had lunch with our addictions pastor here, Pastor Mike Casey. And um, in thinking about the opioid crisis, among other things, and all these intelligent, brilliant, bright people that have been knocked off base by their addictions of all kinds. Those people still have from God a direction and a preordained plan that they can return to. What's the currency of the kingdom? Grace and faith. That's all you need. To receive the grace and unction and touch of God and put faith in God's calling on your life. And who knows? Who knows the kind of person you'll become? And who knows all the different people that you will touch? Paul is sitting in this Roman jail thinking these exalted thoughts. Is he concentrating on the dampness of the jail or his hunger or the darkness or whatever? He's thinking thoughts that are so much of the cosmos and that's why he is one of the greats. And so I want to pray for you. I don't know what kind of a jail you may be sitting in or what kind of a impasse you may be at your life, what kind of maybe failure that you've had or what kind of sin or trespass, even though you're a Christian, you've fallen short or missed uh, the mark. I don't know what your situation is, but God. I just always say, but God. Let's pray that you'll have that but God 
experience with Christ if you've never given and asked Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Or if you're someone that's rolling on all cylinders and you're doing well and you're just taking this as an encouragement to continue or you're somewhere in the middle, I want to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Oh, the people like myself that have taken such solace and comfort and inspiration from it through the years. Once we were dead, now we're alive. We are rolling in the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness from heaven. And Lord, wherever we're on track, don't let us get tired. Don't let us burn out. Lord, keep us, keep us going in faithfulness to spouses and to callings and to our companies and to our country. Keep us faithful, Lord. Those of us maybe who have fallen off the path, would you but God us? Would you rescue us? And even once as we gave our heart to you and you resurrected us out of the dead, Lord, again, let life flow into us that we can dust ourselves off and go forward. And for anyone that has happened on to this time in the Word, and you've never asked Christ into your heart, pray this prayer after me. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God and the only way to God. You died on the cross for my sin. I am a sinner. I need a Savior. Lord Jesus Christ, come into my heart. May my sins be forgiven. May God truly be my Father and heaven actually my future home. I receive your forgiveness and your calling to purity and to purpose. Have your way with my life as you come in and lead me into fellowship and teaching. Thank you. In that great name, amen. And I want to thank you for joining us for Bible study. Keep on studying, keep on listening, keep on being with us on Tuesday nights and here at Calvary on the Sundays if this is your church home. And keep looking up. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.